Hi, welcome to another episode of Great Conversations with me, Nicola O'Donoghue. This week, my guest is Joanne Fender. We talk about the unrealistic pursuit of work-life balance. I might, maybe definitely, jumped on my soapbox talking about organisations and how actually the culture is at such odds with us actually being able to attain work-life balance. Jo shares her experience of being a people pleaser and the impact that this has had on her health as she strives to be the perfect mother, wife and career woman. She also shares lessons learned on her ongoing journey to rebalance her life. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the kind and loving Joanne Fender. Joanne Fender, welcome to Great Conversations. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks, Nick. I'm well. Yeah. Why don't you start by telling me and us who you are? So I am a 40-something mother of two. I live in France, married to a Frenchman, but as you can hear, I'm very British. I actually qualified as a lawyer in the UK, so I'm a solicitor. Moved to France and moved in-house and became an in-house lawyer for a pharmaceutical company out here. Wow, what a fabulous journey. And so I'm really interested, if you don't mind sharing, what has your journey looked like to get to where you are today? My journey has looked like a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice. Growing up, I was always the kid at school who did my homework, who listened attentively in classes. I was a bit of a minor granger. Um, I was very well behaved, did what was expected of me. And that came largely from, you know, my upbringing. My mum was quite strict and she kept me on some quite tight reins. And so I learned from a very young age that if I was going to get her approval of me, then I better do things as she said to do them. And I better stay on the right side of the line, not get into trouble, listen to teachers. I sort of learned those lessons, I would say, relatively early on. And then I grew to actually enjoy being good at school. I can't lie, there was some satisfaction in being the best in the class. That did come with unwanted attention in the form of I won't say bullying, but I did get called to the class nerd. And it did mean that I was never one of the cool kids, but I got comfortable with that at the time. And actually growing up, I did have an experience where my parents divorced actually, and then my mum remarried. And I love my stepdad and he was a great man, but he had his own problems and he had his own financial issues. And one of the difficult periods we had to face was him losing his job. And suddenly I knew what it felt like to not have money. And I think that as well laid a foundation for me to say money is important for security. I remember at that point in time saying to myself, I never want to be on the breadline. I never want to be dependent on anyone. And me wanting to succeed in my studies and then get a good career was also partly to try and avoid the challenges that come from worrying how you're going to pay your next bills, yeah. worrying how you're going to put food on the table. 
Yeah, I can imagine. And I don't want to push my perspective on, but what you're talking to, it sounds like it was quite lonely as well for you, like quite isolating. I know you're an only child as well. Yeah. So it sounds like at such a young age, you were dealing with so much. And I'm just interested, what was your outlet for that? How did you find joy and those pockets of relief from, I guess, what you were dealing with in your external environment with all the stuff going on at home? I did find outlets in sport. I used to do a different sport every day of the week. I was on a netball team, so I did have good friends in that. And I also had a couple of really good best friends who would spend hours with me on the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Bev, if you're listening, this is for you. You know, I grew up in the countryside, so I was isolated as well physically as well as emotionally to some extent. So I had no brothers and sisters to share anything with, but I did take advantage of the opportunity to call my best friend in particular and would spend an hour on the phone nattering. And I found that hugely, hugely beneficial to me. And I think not really understanding it at the time and how it's part of being a social animal, it's part of being human, I think, feeling the need to share But I, you know, I knew, I guess, instinctively that it was good and it felt good to talk and talking, you know, helps you rationalize. It helps you understand that you're not alone. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think particularly when we're younger as well, we feel like we need to have 20 million different friends and that actually to be cool, to be seen, to be part of something means that you have to be within a big group of people. But actually all you really need is that one person. You can still be in a crowd and feel so lonely because there's no connection. You're not seen, you're not heard by the people around you. But if you have that one person in your life and it sounds like it was Bev for you at the time... Yeah, That's all actually you need because that one person sees you, loves you, is there for you and it makes you feel not lonely. Yeah. And someone who can also read you, even when you might not want to talk about something or even when you haven't even got to the stage where you've processed something and are willing to even acknowledge you might need to talk about it, they can immediately see that something is not quite right with you. And I remember she said to me once growing up, you're always so happy all the time. It's not normal. What's wrong? (laughs) Wow. Well, we must have been about 16 at the time. And I remember thinking, oh, isn't it normal? Don't I always have to be happy? Isn't it always expected of me to be happy? Um, And that was me actually putting on a brave face at the time despite some very difficult things I was living through. And she saw it straight away. And that's priceless. There's no monetary value that you can put on that. And that's been one of the really big things about my journey is just realizing how people are actually more willing to help than we give them credit for. And it's not about dumping problems or burdening people with what you're going through. It's that people genuinely do care and love one another. And they're more than willing to help if you just ask them hiding that behind a mask is not serving anyone actually because it keeps you disconnected doesn't it in a relationship because it's not authentic you're not being true and honest with them because you're hiding a part of yourself that might be hating or upset or whatever it is that you've got going on yeah absolutely it doesn't serve anyone Mm -hmm. and I realized actually that I was able to 
open up with Bev and other friends as I grew up, but I always kept my circle quite tight. And I still went out into the world and into the world of work in particular with this feeling that I needed to put on a mask and be always positive and suck it up if I didn't enjoy something or didn't like it. And and I realized again, through trial and error, as it were, that didn't serve me either in the world of work rather than say when something was going to be difficult to achieve by a certain deadline or say that it wasn't reasonable to expect you know two people to do a certain task that we needed for whatever it was i just kept quiet mm. and why did you i guess i just didn't want to disappoint i had this feeling of needing to please and that comes again i think from my upbringing of the dynamics in my household of feeling that i need to make the important people in any situation happy and tell mm. them what they want to hear. And I've taken that people pleaser sort of instinct with me into the world. But again, it doesn't serve me. And it's only now that I've started my sort of journey of self-exploration and self-discovery by going through some coaching and going through sort of personality assessments and trying to understand a bit about myself that I realized that I have this tendency and I can recognize it. I put a finger on it and say, actually, there's a, perhaps a very good reason why you developed that way, Yeah, but it's time to let it go because it is no longer serving you. Yeah. And that's what I'd love to hear more about if you don't mind sharing is the impact that that has had on your journey and on your life. So that tendency, how is it manifested and how has it shown up in the, I guess, in the different relationships within your life, your relationship to yourself, your personal relationships, your career. I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but if you could just talk more about how that impacted your journey and what you experienced. I think in my personal life and with my husband in particular, the people pleaser tendency I have has been a way of, well, I've used it to try and just get through the day-to-day challenges of being married, having a career, having a household, having children. So two girls, age 10 and nearly eight now, and trying to juggle all of that as hugely challenging. For years, actually, I would be the one who would take on myself without voicing any difficulty, but I would take on my own shoulders the burden of trying to juggle everything and projecting this image of being the perfect mum, the perfect wife, the perfect career woman to such an extent that my health started to suffer. Mm. And I went through a period of time at work where I started to lose my hair. I had localized alopecia areata, which doctors I realized are not so familiar with. And when you ask, you know, what's causing it, they give you a very vague stress probably. For me, it clearly was stress. It was lack of sleep. And I felt sadly that I needed to grin and bear it. It's often the women who have this unenviable task of trying to juggle all these areas of life simultaneously. We're the ones who make the appointments for the children to see the doctor. We're the ones who get the vaccinations done, so they can see the dentist, take them to the hairdresser, yeah. make sure that they've got their clothes for school or to do their shoes fit. What have we planned for the dinner? Have we got enough vegetables? You know, three days in a row eating pasta might not 
trouble the average bloke, but actually it troubles me and it troubles many women. So you feel the need to ensure that your children get a varied diet and and all of these things add up. It's extremely hard to navigate it all. And where does that pressure come from? You mentioned it before, this perfect, being the perfect wife, mother, career, woman. Like for you and in your experience, where does that pressure come from? Is it simply internally driven? I think it might be, I might be partly internally driven, partly driven by society and the expectations of society. We fought for women's rights. We fought for equal rights, the right to vote, the right to earn money, the right to have bank accounts and own houses, and even there, an expectation that we're going to succeed and that we can do all the things men can do, which we can, but there doesn't seem to be an honest conversation around the fact that, yes, you can have anything you want in the sense that you are capable as a woman, on the one hand, but that you can't have everything simultaneously. Yeah. And I think that's where we run into trouble because we go into the world of work thinking, right, I am going to work my way up the career ladder. I'm going to be promoted. I'm going to be successful. At the same time, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have children because, again, that's what society expects of me. But also, I would also like that for myself at some point in time. Uh, So, I just push forward on all fronts and then hope for the best. And then you get there and you realize, damn, this is hard. Yeah. And actually not as enjoyable as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. Yeah. And then there's a horrible moment where you think, am I being incredibly ungrateful for, you know, all these things that I've got in my life that others potentially kill for? And yet it seems incredibly ungrateful to say it's not as great. Not all that, you know, it was cracked up to be or not all I thought it was going to be. I've just gone through, I think, the last few years of realizing that there were many things that I had fixed as objectives that slowly, when I came nearer to them, appeared less attractive. Yeah. What was it about them that made them less attractive? I think the first thing I realized was when I was working in private practice in a law firm in London that in order to make partner, you had basically to give up any idea of work-life balance. And I looked at some of the female partners in my firm and I thought, do I want to be like that? Do I really? And I didn't. I realized not seeing their children, um, being in the office all evening, missing out on those key moments. And at that point in time, I thought, okay, So what I originally thought I wanted, being a partner in a law firm, not for me. So I'm going to go and explore other options. And at that point in time, I decided to explore working in-house and I was able to get a better work-life balance, so more reasonable working hours in an interesting environment. So that was one step in the right direction. I just want to talk about that work-life balance because it's something that we hear so much, isn't it? You just need better work-life balance. But I just feel, what does it even mean? I'm not sure that as a concept we ever can truly get work-life balance because I think at different points in our life, 
different things matter. If I think back to when I was in my twenties, I was in private practice as well. Like I actually, in many ways, didn't mind working till two, 3am in the morning because my career was my priority. I was just starting off and don't get me wrong. The environment (laughs) was horrendous, but there was a part of me that you know, I I was young and that was just getting your foot on the ladder and that was what you did. And then as I started to get older, I valued more time to find myself, to go and travel, to spend time with relationships, family, etc. And so I feel like this concept of work-life balance and what you're looking for and what it means actually changes as you change, but it's not something that we ever really take time to consider when I think about work-life balance, what does it mean? Because I think we often go, oh, it's like this 50-50 split. Work is here when the working day is done. Then it's about me and my family and the relationships in my life. And it's just unrealistic because that's not how we, particularly now with technology, it's not how we operate as a society. Working in a big corporation like I am now is not is not easy either. And I've used the term work-life balance perhaps loosely to just mean a shorter working day. Yeah. But I would agree that it's still a constant juggling act and one day rarely ends neatly and then gives you time to completely disconnect and devote your time to yourself and your family. It's more of a fluid back and forth trying to juggle certain things, especially doing what I do, which is managing problems and crises. I've had evenings ruined, weekends ruined, holidays ruined, to the point where my children actually came on a Zoom call once with my boss and said, can you let my mummy stop working now, please? But it it requires sort of systemic organisational change that at least from what I've seen, many organisations are not capable of correcting or at least not easily. So yeah, it's not there, it's still not there, but all we can do is try our best to reiterate those needs, that, that the fact that we are only human, that we're not numbers, that we are not all just replaceable. So I feel as if what you're saying is really resonant that we just get pushed this highlight reel of we can have it all. There is this such concept of work-life balance, particularly as a woman, you can have your own career. You can be a mother, a wife, you can juggle it. You just need to go and figure out how to make that work for you. You just need to put a smile on your face and dig deep because it's possible. And other people are doing it elegantly and beautifully and gracefully. And if you're struggling, there's something actually fundamentally wrong with you. It's not that what you're being sold is broken. Yeah. And I think it's refreshing that more and more we're getting people putting their hand up and being honest and saying, hold on a minute, it's broken. There is, like you say, I can absolutely do everything the same as men if I want to, but I don't know if I want to, and that should be okay. And if I do want to, then things need to change around me in terms of organizational support, the way that men are showing up in relationships, the way that I feel like I can have permission to say, I'm struggling. I'm not happy with this. I need help. I can't do it all myself because it's only through that honest dialogue. And like what you said, accepting that we're human and not this perfect robot that does everything beautifully, perfectly right the first time with a smile on her face, because that's just not the reality that most people live with. But there's so much in trying to be everything to everyone. And I think a lot of men to their credit realize that 
we can't do everything and we need help, but I still don't think we're there yet in terms of an equal distribution of tasks in and around the home. You know, I remember having a conversation about wanting to breastfeed and Pierre saying to me, yeah, great, I support you. That's great for the child, great for you. What's not to like about it? Of course, I support you. But actually, there was a sort of thing that needed to happen behind that, which was actually understanding that in order for the woman to breastfeed, you need to actually make sure that the woman is rested and that she has enough energy and has had enough sleep to be able to even produce milk. And I was not changing anything in the way I organized my day-to-day, you know, in the house. I was still preparing the meals, still the one loading and emptying the dishwasher, still cleaning, doing all the washing. And actually, I ended up, particularly with Lucy, number two, really struggling even to produce enough milk. And then I stopped and I thought, why is my body struggling so much? And then I realized I was just exhausted. I was physically exhausted. And there's a limit to what you can expect your body to do. And there was a horrible feeling that if somebody saw me sitting down, not necessarily doing anything, but just resting, that they might think that I was being lazy or not pulling my weight. When actually, if I'd done myself the service and listened to my body and its needs, I probably would have been able to breastfeed Lucy a bit longer, for example. Yeah. So there are a whole other conversations that need to take place with men around not just saying that they support you, not just on paper, yep, we agree that you can do this and we'll help you. It needs to go beyond. It needs to be one level up. I, mean, I saw someone posted a, a meme for International Women's Day around precisely that, the fact that a man saying that he recognized that what his partner needed wasn't just paying lip service to, I'm going to be, I support you in whatever you want to do, whatever. It was actually doing things like planning meals, not just going to the supermarket with a list of things to buy, but actually thinking, what can we eat for the next seven days? Putting together the meal plans and then going to do the shopping and then buying all the stuff and even perhaps helping prepare some of the meals. So it's not enough just to say, okay, tell me what you would like me to help you with because that's not taking away some of this mental overwhelm that we have. And that is exactly that. It's the unseen jobs that as a mother and a wife in terms of running the household that you just don't see that are not valued. And that's what you're talking to. There was some study that came out, I think it was PwC during COVID, because obviously there's been lots of stuff written about COVID and how actually it's put women back in the workplace back many years and just saying that they do two and a half times the jobs of men because they, they basically got two and a half careers like particularly women that have children because at the end of their working day it's not the end of their working day they then start their second job which is running the household and if they've got children their third job which is looking after the children going back to this concept of work-life balance like for me it's more of a collective decision like we as women there's only so far we can define our own work-life balance because actually we need input from so many other people we need input from our partners we need input from the organizations that we work with like it is actually 
a collective effort. So you mentioned it earlier that you're at a point where you're sort of figuring out having these conversations about who are you, where to next, what your life looks like, what's been the path to get to here, what's happened recently, how have you navigated through a lot of what we've spoken about to get to where you are today? It started really with me doing sort of a competency assessment at work. I was fortunate enough to have a boss who is now retired, but he was encouraging and he was very encouraging of me to try and explore other areas of interest because he knew that the work I do now and we did together is extremely punishing in some ways because it's so intensive and it requires, despite it being better than working in private practice, it still requires a lot of sacrifice. And he could tell I was searching and dissatisfied with some of the things in the world of work in a big corporation. And it was through that process that I learned about personality profiling and your personality type. And I did my Myers-Briggs, did my Enneagram. And it started me on this process of firstly getting to know myself and asking myself what it is that I want to do every day, what it is that I think will make me feel happy and fulfilled and where those feelings of happiness and fulfillment really come from. And I realized in doing that, that one of the things that was making me happy, I suppose, it could make me more happy in the future is the sense of creativity, being creative around mm-hmm. something. And that's one of the things that is or has been lacking, I think, in the work I've been doing as an in-house lawyer. And feeling that my days are not my own, that my timetable is dictated by other people, constantly navigating this influx of emails that need to be dealt with a tidal wave that never stops. And I started to feel like I was on this conveyor belt, really, that I wanted to get off to say, just stop bombarding me with requests and frustrating demands, which when I looked at them were symptomatic of a disorganized workplace of imperfect management, poor organization, people coming into the organization without proper training, without knowing what it is they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to go around doing their work, and all of these inefficiencies leading to problems that then needed to be dealt with. So I ended up just getting hugely frustrated with all of this and thinking, really, what matters to me? And I've come back to one of my core values, which is health. The industry I work in is in pharmaceuticals, but I think through this process of self-exploration, I'm realizing that health is so much more than medicine. Yes, medicine can save lives, but when you're at the point of taking medicine, you've already gone so far down this path of disease that good luck to you, really. What I value is, you know, maintaining health, fostering health through lifestyle. And one of the things that I would like to focus on in future is becoming more educated in the world of nutrition because what you eat affects fundamentally everything in your body and the way we go into the world is dramatically affected by what we put into our bodies. I'm on this journey of self-discovery and I also feel like I need to heal both my body and my mind in doing this and so part of my plan for the future is to focus more on that which means making huge changes to my life as it is and having difficult conversations with 
colleagues and members of my family. But you know what? You only live once. So I actually heard something and it was, you don't only live once, you only die once, you live every day. Which I just thought was brilliant. I love that. I was like, oh my God, imagine that reframe. How would your life be different if you went out? I live every day, but I only die once. I would love to know as you're navigating, because what you're talking about is obviously a huge transformation in your life of starting to put yourself into the picture and part of the narrative and taking care of yourself. How is your people pleaser dealing with that? My people pleaser is taking it one step at a time. <laughs> She's fighting with herself on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> the one step at a time being that I've now actually voiced firstly to my husband and now to my daughters the fact that I want to change, which is the first step. Um, because, again, admitting that you're not happy doing the things that you're doing and that something in your life needs to change can be quite daunting. And I know that when I first had this discussion with Pierre, he got a bit nervous and said, is there anything else in your life that needs to change? Should I be worried? And I reassured him and I said, nothing that we can't work on. For me, the, the biggest thing is what I spend the majority of my time doing and that's working. And if I can start to address that, then that will give me greater peace of mind for the greater proportion of my time. And if I'm happy in that, then, you know, I'll have the energy and the resourcefulness to address other little things that also could be improved in our lives. We spoke earlier about this definition of being the perfect mum and wife and career woman and then what that meant in terms of the pressure and how you should show up and the amount of responsibility that you take on and how is that shifting and evolving and what are some of the things that you're doing that's really helping you navigate that change because I can only assume that that's identity that's at the core of if you've operated in this way driven by your people pleaser for the majority of your life and now you're redefining what that looks like and for you I'm really interested what are some of the things that you're finding practically that are helping you navigate through that and redefine what that means for you. One thing that I'm doing at work, which is my reference just now to me taking it one step at a time, baby steps day by day, in the workplace that's manifesting itself as me letting others take the lead in dealing with topics, stepping up to participate, give advice, Whereas in the past, I always felt that as a senior member of the team and then as the head of the team, it always had to be me who was stepping up, taking control of a meeting, being the first to take a position, explain the legal approach to a problem. Now I'm taking a step back and almost, I would say, naturally, the others in my team are stepping forward. I'm letting them step forward and take the lead on many topics. And 
I would say it's always easy because I feel a little bit like a spare part here. And that does great. It does great because I feel that sense of self, that sense of pride, but also identity. And this worry as well, what other people might think is also mixed into that sort of dynamic. It's still taking me swallowing quite a lot of pride, but I know that this is the way it needs to happen. This is the way I'm going to be able to say in the coming weeks and months, okay, guys, you're on your own. I'm going to gracefully bow out now and go and do something else. And it's a really interesting reframing of leadership as well, isn't it? As a leader, we tell ourselves that we have to be leading from the front, but actually leading from behind or alongside your colleagues is equally as important and as valuable. What you're doing is mentoring and growing the people in your team so that they can sort of flourish and that for me is one of the best forms of leadership is knowing that a part of that job and your role is to build the next generation of leaders and they can only do that by being given the opportunity to step up but it does take a lot it takes a lot of courage to trust and to step back and the ability to say you know what I might not be the best person to answer this particular question or there's somebody more knowledgeable on something than me. They've spent time looking at this. They know their stuff. Let's have courage in them. Let's have faith and be able to say, I'm going to take myself out of this discussion and let them carry on. And as you look back over your journey and where you've come from, what are some of the key things that you're bringing forward? Like key lessons that you've learned or wisdom that you've acquired? That... Honesty pays, that being frank about what's possible or not for you is hugely beneficial to you and the people you're working with. And it serves nobody to pretend everything's fine put up some pretense around what can be done and then either disappoint or get yourself so stressed or burnt out that then you end up really suffering in the process mm. of trying to meet expectations on you, whether they're society's expectations or the expectations of a workplace or expectations maybe that you place on yourself thinking that that's what's expected of you in the workplace whatever, it does not pay to suffer the pretense of everything being fine. So I think one of the big lessons for me is to talk and to be honest about what I think is feasible or not. So we have a closing tradition on this podcast and I ask all my guests if you would please tell me what is something that other people value that you do not? So in the same vein of what we've spoken about today, I would say other people value status and achievement of titles and financial success. And I've come to the realization that I don't value that. And I think that true happiness comes from being with people you love and fulfillment comes from 
being connected to others in whatever shape or form that takes, and whether it's a parent-child relationship, whether it's a friend relationship, whether it's helping somebody you really don't know, but being of service to others. I think for me, that's what life's really about, being of service and connection, feeling connected. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I'd like to thank the humans that make the Great Conversations podcast possible. My editor, Jovan Stoikowski, Jamie Jenkin, who made the lovely music that you're hearing now, and my guests for their willingness to share their personal stories. If you haven't already, please rate and follow the podcast. It's a great way to show your support and allows me to keep bringing on extraordinary guests. Sending you so much love. Bye for now.